And good morning and welcome to The Age Stage. My name is Paula Dunn and I'm joined today by Brodie Gazay. How are you, Brodie? I'm all right, actually. Yep. Um, uh, the, the, the winter's come with a little bit of a shunt. I know, it has, hasn't it? And uh, yeah. tapped me on me on me bones, mm. so to speak, and reminded me. <laughs> yeah, you know. I know. So, um, I know. I'm sort of squeaking a bit, but I am doing... Um, I'm going to... Uh, a gym twice a week, and I'm finding that's helping me reach my socks, which is not a bad. Well, that's thing. good. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You'd have to feel better moving around. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I I need to do more walking, but I'm I don't need a walking stick for stopping falling over or anything. Mm. But I find that walking with a stick, like a tall one, you know, <clears> like <throat> a, uh, gives like me a staff. it gives me space. A pace, not space. Yeah, it yeah. gives me pace. Yeah. So that gives you that, and mm. and also when you you stop it, you you do, or you're climbing down something. You're going down a mm. steep hill. You just stick it in front of you, and it just mm. gives you that. It gives you that uh, that sort of sense of of, mm. of safety, which is you know that, well at my age, it's it's I, I don't as I say I don't need it, but I I, I, would, I wouldn't like to take a conventional walking stick, mm. but mm. A, a a walker's stick. Yes. I'm happy well, to. it's very hilly where you live. You're right up the top. Well, I'm at the top. Balura. Yeah. yeah. And it's sort yeah. Of, you can push yourself up a little and then give yourself a bit. Yes. Of, yeah. So, yeah. Mm. So, it's, it's now, I've got no excuse at this time of the year mm. because it's, when it's cool, then you can't sweat yourself to death. No. You just get out there and walk. I know. Mm. Now, today. Yes. Now, today we have uh, some interesting guests. Mm-hmm. Uh, following World Parkinson, Parkinson's Day last Wednesday, uh, we have the board member of the Shake, Shake It Up Foundation, Ben Young, and he's going to be talking to us about Parkinson's mm-hmm. and, um, you know, with the aim to one day finding a cure, which would be fantastic. For, it's a dreadful get, disease. They're getting closer, mm. I think, because mm. I have the shakes, but mine's but not Parkinson's. It's not Parkinson's. I know it's not Parkinson's. No. Yeah. It's muscular. Is it? Mm. Okay. And so so I, therefore you exercising more would help that. Well, it's, it? I don't know because, uh, the, the, they, they have a tendency to contract. But so for example, even today, uh, I was carrying something just before I came to the studio and they said, can you write, you know, write your something? Mm. And I can't write for, uh, for perhaps an hour, an hour and a half after I've carried something. Okay. Because they're in contra- contraction, spasm, spasm contraction, so you get the shakes. Okay, so the muscles are contracting, but that's not to do with the neural pathway. I don't You're think not so, getting no, no. messages. No. Yeah, okay. And so, we also have, um, we'll also be joined by Associate Professor Josephine Anderson, and she's a clinical direct, the clinical director of the Black Dog Institute, which is really... Um, about depression, and she's going to be talking to us about depression in old, older Australia. Black Dog was named by Churchill. I think he was the first one that Possibly. referred to the Black yes. Dog. Yes, yeah, yeah, because he, he, was, he suffered, from uh, suffered badly. Hmm. Yeah, from depression. Well, going to be a full show. And, it will uh, be. And, and for our nearest and dearest amigos, who have we got? We have Stuart Shaw. On his own today. On his own. Isn't that a surprise? And welcome, Stuart. And how are you? What a surprise, Paula. Good to see you again. Good to see you too, Brody. And you too, buddy. 
We uh, have become the three amigos. We, we, we have become the yes. three amigos. Look, we'll have to get our Mexican hats out and we our will. ponchos. <laughs> we, well, I think look, we, we could make quite a colourful scene. <laughs> we could, very colourful. You know, we, we could easily transition from radio to TV mm-hmm. uh, if we were to do that. <laughs> we could. I was trying to be very Mexican during the week and I made fish tacos and they were disgusting. Yeah, well, oh, you're yeah, a better tacos. man than me. I know, but my kids said, you know, they've always said, I love these fish tacos, I love fish tacos. I don't make fish tacos. No, horrible. Just horrible. So that that didn't work. Mm. I've had a lot of culinary disasters. Have you? Yeah, recently. Just don't do it anymore. (laughs) Well, that's why he's taken up walking again, quite clearly. You know, he's still got the stick in my hand. Foraging. You know, he can march along the street with it. Now, so, you wanted you wanted to give yeah. us a, 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 a wow, 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 wow moment. A little, yeah, a little right now, here it is. Here. I want to talk about safety and security. You go yeah, for yeah. it, Stuart. You know, too many people make themselves a, a soft target uh, in the community. Do you lock your doors at home? If the answer is no, then you are a soft target. Never leave your windows open. Uh, you know, make certain they are locked overnight. Very easy for people to jemmy your window. Um, you know, put security lights around your house. So, so that if a light goes on at night and while someone's moving around but shouldn't be there, hopefully they'll move along to the next house mm-hmm. uh, or the next unit, wherever it may be. The police gave an interesting tip uh, to us the other day about putting in uh, little night lights for come on that are uh, movement activated. Yeah, we have those. So if someone's in your house and a light goes on, Mm. they may suddenly scarper. Mm. So just a whole range of little simple things to do uh, for just enhancing your own uh, safety. Keep your car doors locked. Can Uh, you landmine the the front? (laughs) Um, Look, that that is always an option if all else fails. They deserve it. Look, I, I might share that view, but I would be, I would be reluctant to, to actually admit that. Um, but, you know, just really simple things. You know, make certain you, you all, all front, front and back doors are locked. Mm. It's very easy to overlook uh, one, one. And, you know, first thing you know that uh, you have been the victim of a crime. Mm. The troublesome really sense is if you've got a cat, they set it off. And if you have, you know, if for for every good thing that you get, if you have an outside sensor and the wind blows. Yep. Mm. Uh, so, so be it. But, but they've become a lot better over the years. You know, you can change for sensitivity uh, on them and, and that helps. But, you know, certainly you wouldn't put it in the way of a swaying branch. Mm. You know, you, you would put it elsewhere. Some but, people are really, really fearful living on their own, aren't they? They are, mm. and I think it's just a, an indictment upon us as a, as a society now that mm. there just seems to be so much crime and and home breaking and car stealing that it is it is a worrying issue, and, and the the age old trick is to make don't make yourself a victim, you know. Remember when we used yeah. to have the the yeah. old crook locks on your car? Yes, there was a good visible deterrent. For those younger <laughs> listeners yes. who has no who have no idea what a crook lock may be, um, you know it, it was really handy to mm. stop your car from being stolen, mm. and it was all with the, the view of moving the problem uh, elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Another good tip that I I heard during the course of a week was you should take a photograph of all your credit cards. Uh, that way, you've got it to remind yourself if some if you do lose your wallet. This is what I have. These are the people that I need to notify here are the numbers 
uh, available, mm. uh, which, which is well worth doing. But don't leave them on your phone. phone don't exactly. leave them on your phone, mm. correct. So you, you would print it out, put it in a, in, in a safe place. Uh, the other thing, so we, we had the, um, the regional, or we used to say the Frankston um, Community Policing Squad. Now it's, I think, the, the Divisional Community Policing Squad. So hi to Sharon Coburn. Um, Hello, Sharon. Hello, Sharon. Yeah, Hello, say Sharon. hi to Sharon. Hi, Sharon. <laughs> you know, Sharon would say, never leave your wallet by your bed, you know, because that's the most obvious place for anyone who's going to come and steal it. Mm. You know, put it somewhere that's a little more obscure uh, overnight. If you have valuable jewellery, make certain you've taken a photograph of it to give yourself a chance to go to um, a jeweller and say and get it priced. Um, ideally, if it's extremely valuable jewellery, you would have already had it valued. But it's all about having necessary evidence in the event that you uh, are the victim of a crime. My dad used to leave 20 quid on the table whenever he left his place. Mm-hmm. And uh, just uh, it was, you know, it was always in the jar. Just put it out, leave it on the table. And his argument was, it, nine times out of ten, it was going to be children, and they all wanted some just play money. So yeah. they'd, yeah. they'd see the twenty quid and get out. Clever yeah. man. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But you know, it, it is about just trying to make certain that no matter where you live, mm. uh, to try and minimise the risk of being the victim of a crime. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just think that's really good common sense sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, and, until the problem goes away, uh, then take care. Well, it's not going to. No, no, right. it's not. So, well, so, so just take care. It's a very sage advice from a very sage human being, being you. You're oh, well, me. <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> yes, yes. There isn't anyone else. <laughs> no, no, look, I, I, I'm getting used to uh, the three of us just here. Now, I've got, I've got a, mess, uh, a, a couple of questions that's come up this week. Dale Eddington from Rosebud. Now, they have got um, uh, an interesting question to do with mailing lists, and I'll just praise it. Um, the If you go onto a waiting list, then it's it's quite a long one. I think you actually have a quite a long waiting we, list. We have a lengthy waiting list. Yeah. Mm. So if you, if you decide to put your name on it, and it's getting closer and closer, and then you suddenly get a phone call saying, well, do you want it or not? How much leeway do you have at that moment? Because do you go to the bottom of the pile again and have to wait for another? Yeah, fair, fair question. And, and we are asked that question fairly re- frequently, mm-hmm. um, particularly when we might have an open day where another 50 names will be added to yes. a waiting list. But, you know, in general terms, the way we manage it. So you've already told us where, what sort of unit you would like. Where, where, which area of a village you would like to live in. Do you want a road frontage? Do you want a back frontage? Uh, do you want to face east? Do you want to face west? Whatever the case. So we know a bit about you. So the waiting list uh, works uh, literally uh, in order. There's no preferential treatment provided to our waiting list. Uh, it, it is sacrosanct. So you've now reached the top of the waiting list. You'll come along. You'll, we'll show you the unit that meets your specifications and you'll say... No, I don't think so. Not not for me. You know, that's fine. We will leave you at the top of our waiting list. Then, you know, some months elapse, we will ring you again and say, okay, we now think we understand uh, what your unit uh, requirement will be. Come along. We've got one that meets that requirement. You'll come along and so you'll say, mm, 
no, I don't think so. And we'll say, you're not serious about actually coming into the village mm. at this stage mm-hmm. because we've understood what your requirements may be. We've met them twice. You've declined twice. Is there something that we're missing out on? Right. Mm. And at that point, a couple of things can happen. You might say, yeah, look, I'm really just not ready. I want another couple of years or whatever mm-hmm. it whatever the circumstance might be. So we may drop you down at that stage. Do, when you say drop you down, do you go to the bottom? or do de- you dr- It depends. If, if, if Brody, in his wisdom, uh, decides that, you know, we've had a couple of cracks at it already yep. and, it's, and it's not quite time for him, then, you know, if it's going to be a few years, then, yes, we can drop you down. Mm. Now, as to how far down, well, that, that depends on what sort of unit style you may be looking for. Mm-hmm. And I think that most people would do something uh, similar to what we do because the first unit that we offer you might not be quite what you're anticipating. Mm-hmm. It might have been, you know, West Sun or whatever it mm. might yes, be. Yes, yeah. So, you know, we, we don't just kick, kick people down to the bottom yes. uh, because they, they don't like the first unit we offer them. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so you know, but, and I think most villagers would do something similar because... You know, if you're prepared to wait, then the ideal unit will come up. Mm, yes. And you can, or of course I can, when this must be, I guess, the most frequent, ah, you got one, oh yes, that's fine. Right, well, we're going to go and sell our house now. Yes, yeah, so we would identify, so you never sell your house in anticipation that a unit's going to become available. No, not going to. <laughs> yes, mm-hmm. good. So we, so we would say to you, we've got a unit, we think meets your needs, you come along, you say, yes, that's, that's ideal for us. We then say, put your house on the market, take at least a three-month settlement. Mm-hmm. Might even be, you know, 120 days. Mm. We can advise you at the time because we need to refurbish the unit mm. for you if, if it's not a new unit. Mm-hmm. If it's a new unit that uh, we're offering to you, then we would have taken you round that unit whilst it was at lock-up stage mm. so you could see what was available and you would then have input into what the, you know, so some of the, the decor yes, and, and yes. that may be in your yep. unit. Mm. So you would have already made that decision and we would mm. have told you at that point, it'll still be three months before you can move in. So put mm. your house on the market now mm. and don't take anything less than 90 days. Mm. Because it's a huge thing to downsize, isn't it? Absolutely. You know, you've, your furniture no longer fits, you know, the big open plan house. You know, yes. you're going down from that to a unit. And yeah, exactly. I, 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 I um, had that exact experience going from like a five-bedroom, you know, three bathrooms. Like a mansion. Morning. Yeah, a mansion. Yes. Down to a unit. And it was I was virtually giving away furniture. Yeah. And you need to prepare for that because mm. you don't want the unit to be too cluttered. Mm. Mm. It's still got to be no, an No, I don't do clutter at all. Clutter so, doesn't work. So, yeah, there are different <laughs> things, um, you know, Villagers would generally try and work with mm. uh, whoever the potential customer is. Good. That, uh, you know, we don't want to force people to take a unit they don't like mm-hmm. uh, because we would be doing them a disservice. Yes. All right, moving on to the next question from Elizabeth Varney from Sandhurst. Is that part of our area, Sandhurst? Yes, it is. Oh, okay. Yes, yes, Sandhurst. it's out past Caram Downs Way. Right. Yep. We have a director that lives out at Sandhurst. Oh, Okay. So, mm. so Elizabeth says, uh, if I need in-home care in my retirement lifestyle village uh, and I want to stay there, I don't want to go into care, 
Do you supply the care facilities either on your staff or through a provider, or do I have to go and find my own, or, or can I find my own? You can certainly find your own. Right. So if you're going into funded care, so through um, through the Commonwealth Aged Care Package Program, yeah. you would need to be assessed, go on the My Aged Care waiting list, mm-hmm. and at some point in the future, your lucky number will come up and you can have care service delivered to you from a provider of your choice. This is after the ACAT. This is after the ACAT. So the ACAT's assessed you, yes, you need Mm -hmm. a level two package. Mm. Um, You're then registered on my age care. And so at some point in the future, you've any weight. When your number does come up, you choose whether you want, so your provider, so your retirement village, uh, they may be providing community care as they do at Village Glen, mm-hmm. as we do at Village Baxter. So we would like to think that we we would each be the first port of call mm-hmm. to deliver the package to you. But you might have a relative who works for Brotherhood St Lawrence. Mm-hmm. So you might like them to provide your package. So, so your choice is yours. You can arrange it, your provider yourself, or you can come to your provider, uh, come to your retirement village provider, and see whether they can provide it for you. Mm-hmm. They may have a relationship with an existing community care service, mm-hmm. and it would make sense to just build on the relationship. Yes. And I guess if you could afford it, so, and you, you weren't going to get government assessment, but you were going to get assessed to see establish your need level, and they said you need a category or a level two, then your people would know what a level two was, and they would be able to give you a price to deliver that level two. Yeah, so whilst you're waiting for my age care yes. for, the, for the raffle to come up, uh, you have choices <laughs> at that stage. Mm. Better chance of winning mm. the lottery. Mm. Yeah, almost. Uh, currently, there, there is lengthy waiting lists, uh, certainly, which the government acknowledge. Oh, uh, good. Oh, oh yeah, well, that's, that's nice right. of them they, to okay. acknowledge well, it. Yeah, yeah so they, that's they, all right. Yeah, do acknowledge yeah. Yeah, yeah. Length, lengthy mm. waiting lists. Mm. So in the interim... Uh, you can privately pay for a package. Uh, so your, your retirement village uh, should be able to identify what you, you need and then price it accordingly and deliver it for a fee, fee for service. Uh, that's probably your best option because a lot of that used to be taken up by local government mm-hmm. uh, through, through council Councils, home help services. Yeah, yeah. But that's becoming a diminishing, if not fully... Fully uh, absorbed, mm. yeah, mm. In, into the, uh, the the Commonwealth My Age Care program. So, so that that's a little more complex. Can be a little bit of a dilemma. Yeah, mm. your only other option, of course, is your is family. Family, yeah. mm. you know, family yeah. need to support you yeah. in, in your time of need. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so we 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 can operate as as Village Glen can operate mm. uh, under any of those scenarios. Okay. And mo- most larger villages. Uh, can do the same. You know, we, we have relationships with other smaller villages mm-hmm. where we can provide service. Uh, um, St John's over in Somerville and certainly Rosebud now that uh, Rosebud is ours, that um, we're happy to provide mm-hmm. services to clients there and uh, and even in a broader community. But the options are the same whether you're living at, uh, at home, yeah. uh, in, in your apartment, yeah. uh, Paula. So... You could arrange services through a variety of providers once you're assessed in need 
or if you want to do it privately. Mm. Yes. Okay, we've only got a couple of minutes for the last question. Now, this is from Michelle Walton. She's from Frankston, and you've got that question, haven't you? Yes, I have. And she wants to know um, if unforeseen circumstances occurred, such as let's say she was able to go on a trip to Europe and she was going, her unit was going to be empty for a year, so could she have someone, could she allocate for her, you know, her auntie or relative to live in her unit for a year while she's away? Or what are the costs? Does she pay ongoing costs as you would if you locked up your house? That sort of thing. Okay, so fairly simple response that you are the occupant of your unit um, in, in your retirement village. Mm-hmm. The contract is with you. Uh, I don't. I'm not aware of any village who would be happy to effectively have the unit sublet, mm. because mm. people may not conform to their their legal obligations in terms of age um, and and requirement. So there are a range of issues around that. So mm. you are the occupant. It's an interesting question, isn't it? Certainly, mm. uh, if you so you've got your trip. Yeah. Um, you're going away for twelve months. You will continue to pay your maintenance fees because that's covering your rates and taxes and everything else. Mm-hmm. No different if you were living at, in uh, in Turak mm-hmm. and yeah, but you wouldn't that. necessarily pay your internet fees and on a normal environment, your internet, your electricity and gas, you'd just shut so those down. Certainly, well, you're still paying your supply charge, so yes, supply, even if yeah. you're not using it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, that, and and your actual usage cost for these services is the minimal component. Mm. So your charging will still keep on applying no matter where you live. Mm. You'll still pay your rates no matter where you live. You'll still pay your supply charges. Your usage charge will diminish, yeah. but it will diminish in your retirement village uh, as well as uh, uh, in your private dwelling. Right. So so those things will occur. And the same would apply if you're in hospital. Mm. So, you know, no, again, no different to what happens in your, on your quarter acre block with your... Uh, your triple fronted brick veneer. Except home. that you could put your kids in or you yes. Except someone to look after your house. Yeah. At that you. stage you have ownership. Yeah. And yes, you could sublet it. Mm. So that's the only marked difference, difference between us. Mm. That uh, retirement villages, you know, are not geared up to, to provide subletting. But if, uh, but let's assume uh, taking your illness thing, uh, the kids came along and said, look, this is uh, mum's sister. Uh, can uh, she would like to be close to her because she's actually in hospital uh, and uh, she's 68 uh, and uh, and come and meet you and everyone and that sort of thing happened you could probably negotiate your way in certainly some villages will do that yeah. we we will talk with a family member yeah if if not so if mum or dad's in hospital uh, we have a unit we can rent you so we provide rental units yep. so people can be close by uh, we, with our permission, we are happy to have a relative stay with you yep. if you're in the unit, mm. and we have approved people to stay uh, in their unit if mum's in hospital and is going to come be there for the next week or so. Yep. We have approved that uh, mm-hmm. as right. well. So but just, that varies from village to yes, village. Right. Circumstances. But just ask the question is the, yeah. is the, is the answer. Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. Ask the question of yeah. your village provider mm-hmm. as to how they would respond under those circumstances. Mm-hmm. You know, wherever possible, I think most of us would try and work with a family yeah. to try and ensure that in a time of need that, we can step up and assist in that. Yes. And uh, I think that's, you know, there's some of the things that I think we're actually good at. 
but it will depend on provider to provider. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so go and ask your, your, at your local village yes. what the arrangements might be. Words of wisdom yet again. They were good uh, questions. They were good though. questions. Yes. They were good. Thank you very much yes. for answering that. Thank you, Stuart. Let's hope my, that you get a little bit of help next week. My pleasure. I, I'm, I'm anticipating that Peter will be back with us yes. next week. Mm-hmm. And I uh, yep. from, Best wishes to you. And, um, yeah, we, we do send our, our greetings. We do. We yes. do. Yes. Yep. All right. See you next see week. See you next Indeed. week, Stuart. Bye. 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 And welcome back to The Age Stage. My name is Paula Dunn and I'm here today with Brody Guzay and we have a really interesting guest to speak to um, now, Brody. We have Ben Young, who is a board member for Shake It Up. Welcome, Ben. Oh, thanks, Paula. Thanks for having me on. You're welcome. Now, Parkinson's the, is arguably one of those diseases which we, we tend to hear every now and again, there's sort of going to be a breakthrough and then there isn't and there is. How close are we? We feel like we're getting particularly close yeah. um, to to moving towards, we, we see there's a three-phase process. You know, first we have to slow the progression of Parkinson's, then we have to be able to stop it and then reverse um, the effects of Parkinson's. And, and at the moment there's some really promising research uh, which we think will come to uh, fruition over the next few years, certainly in the area of slowing the progression. There's already research which is having um, fanta- really promising results and, uh, and we'll hopefully that will come to reality soon. Yeah, I was astounded, Ben, to read that the one person, uh, one Australian every 45 minutes is diagnosed with Parkinson's. That's an astounding statement, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it? one of the things which is um, is misunderstood is the prevalence of Parkinson's yes. in our community. Uh, we've got certainly over over 80,000 is a conservative estimate of people in Australia living with Parkinson's. As you say, 32 more people are diagnosed uh, every day. Wow. And it's an autoimmune, isn't it, disease? Uh, autoimmune? It, it, it's a degenerative, it's a, it's a neurodegenerative disease. So mm-hmm. what's occurring in Parkinson's is that you have cells in the brain that produce the chemical dopamine. And um, the best way that it's uh, been described to me in the past has been the dopamine acts um, as a like the grease in an engine of a car. It's a it's a neurotransmitter, mm. and it helps send the messages send the messages from the brain to the various parts of the body. Mm. What's occurring in Parkinson's is that um, that dopamine production is affected, and as a result, the messages aren't transmitted. Um, as well as we'd like them to be transmitted, and so that's what's occurring. Mm. One of the one of the um, misconceptions or misunderstanding is that um, you know when people get their first symptoms of Parkinson's, they've just uh, okay now Parkinson's is just you know they've, they've only just um, had Parkinson's or, or, or the effects have only just started. Certainly, that's when the symptoms develop, but it's those cells that have been deteriorating for some time. It's not until seventy percent of those dopamine-producing cells have deteriorated, that people start to see their first physical symptoms of Parkinson's, mm. um, which is uh, one of the reasons why early diagnosis is um, is a key area. If we can get early diagnosis, then we can slow the progression of the disease. We're well on the way to changing the trajectory of, of someone living with Parkinson's. So when you look at the... Um the trend at the moment with drug taking as it is affecting that dopamine, you know, the nucleus accumbens in the brain and the dopamine levels are being, you know, distributed at an astounding right. rate. And I'm talking more about ice than, and cocaine probably. 
would that then flow on to think that more we're going to have more people suffering from Parkinson's, younger people? Look, I don't think uh, I think the uh, don't think that's 100 percent definitive um, as yet, and I think that mm. there, there is some research I'm aware of that yeah, you know, is being done into that space. Yeah. Um, but um, but but yeah, I probably wouldn't be in a position to um, um, to comment on that. Is it um, is it hereditary? We, uh, look, what we um, with Parkinson's, the situation is that it's familial. So you have a you have um, the vast majority of people um, that have Parkinson's do not have a direct genetic link. There's only a very small percentage of people with Parkinson's where, they, where there's a um, you know, clearly defined genetic link. Uh, but what we do see is, you know, it's clusters. And so, um, you know, the situation where you have, um, you know, certain family members that might not have a direct genetic link, uh, but you might um, have a you know, predisposition, if you like, um, and then it's a combination of genetic and environmental factors that then lead to someone getting a Parkinson's diagnosis. And so, Ben, what are the early signs of Parkinson's? I mean, we're all aware of tremors and things like that, mm. but what, what, what else? Well, that is, that's an interesting thing. You know, um, a lot of people are familiar with the idea of a tremor with someone with Parkinson's. You know, people talk about the shakes, mm. um, but there's a whole range of symptoms. And one of the challenges is that no two people with Parkinson's have the same set of symptoms. So mm. it's a very different journey for everyone, you know, uh, other symptoms can include actual rigidity as opposed to a tremor, oh. difficulty walking, cognitive impairment, um, anxiety, depression, speech difficulties. Uh, but um, one of the early signs that um, people, once they've been diagnosed with Parkinson's uh, report, is that they may have lost their sense of smell in the lead-up to getting a Parkinson's diagnosis or okay. they may have had sleep difficulties mm. um, in terms of REM sleep disorder now. Um, certainly, you know, you'll have listeners um, think, oh, hang on, I've lost my sense of smell. It certainly does not mean someone has Parkinson's, mm. uh, but that is one of the symptoms that people retrospectively report mm. after a Parkinson's diagnosis. So is there any data on how many people actually go um, misdiag- or misdiagnosed from? because a lot of the symptoms you just described could be diagnosed from many other diseases? Yeah. There's a high rate of misdiagnosis and also, yeah, and non-diagnosis. So people um, do um, report frustration with regards to getting their Parkinson's diagnosis. Mm. So a lot of people go to a number of doctors, a number of neurologists until they get their diagnosis. And one of the studies that we're funding at the moment is um, is working towards a blood test to help diagnose Parkinson's because at the moment people... Um, uh, the, the testing and the diagnosis is all subjective. Um, it's all based upon what a doctor observes of symptoms yes. as opposed to a medical test um, mm. or looking for a biomarker. And so you know, um, that will be one of the big breakthroughs if uh, we are able to develop, for instance, a blood test that allows us to diagnose whether someone has Parkinson's. It does a few things. We can, we're more likely to get early diagnosis we can get definitive diagnosis and the sooner we get that, the sooner someone can commence treatment and if we can couple that with disease-modifying drugs that can slow the progression of the disease, um, we're well on the way to um, to you know, a better life for people with a Parkinson's diagnosis. If you have full-blown Parkinson's, what's the prognosis? Um, 
symptoms, we, we have very, very good um, uh, medication that does treat the symptoms. You know, while Shake It Up is focused on, you know, research uh, towards, you know, better treatments and ultimately a cure, that's not to say that the treatments today are not very good. We have good treatment uh, that, that, um, that deal with the symptoms. Uh, but naturally, given it's a neurodegenerative disease over time, um, the medications become less effective and um, naturally um, the disease um, progresses. Uh, but probably the, 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 to answer your question, um, Brody, would be that people normally die with Parkinson's as opposed to from Parkinson's. Right. Um, mm. And while the symptoms become challenging, um, they, um, yeah, they, they are, yeah, I guess, manageable, uh, but, uh, but certainly more and more challenging um, as the years go on. So does it, you know, is there a, um, a statistic that tells you um, how much it reduces your lifespan by? Um, I don't have um, that um, on hand. Um, I think there might be. I must admit I don't have that data on hand. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, but certainly what, it, what we find is that it, it, particularly with a young diagnosis, it changes um, the lives that people are living. So yeah. um, one of the misconceptions of Parkinson's is that it's an only an old person's disease. You only get it much later in life, mm. whereas in effect 20% of those people diagnosed are under 50. And so you can imagine that um, a Parkinson's diagnosis with all of these symptoms that we've um, explained mean to you know, result in people having to change their you know, family um, arrangements, their work life, and that places enormous pressure um, on, um, on families um, when people um, have to make those adjustments. Now, you just had, uh, on a happier note, you just had World Parkinson's Day. That what happened, I think, on April the 11th. Was, uh, how, how was that? Was it good for you? Yeah, it was a wonderful success. Um, so we introduced uh, this campaign, Pause for Parkinson's, a number of years ago now. And uh, what we seek to do is encourage people to take time out of everyone's busy schedules and um, and to stop for a moment and to think um, about those people who are living with Parkinson's, consider the symptoms, share a story about Parkinson's with their families and friends so that we can build that level of awareness and, of course, fundraise at the same um, time. Mm. Um, and so we got a wonderful uh, media coverage, and thanks to you and your listeners for, for hearing our story today. Um, and we've had um, you know, a huge amount of community engagement as well as corporate sponsorship over the month of April um, for World Parkinson's Day and Parkinson's Awareness Month. And, uh, and it's our, you know, it's our big fundraiser for the year, and uh, it's allowing us to go on to fund you know, more and more Parkinson's research. And so if um, any of our listeners wanted to become involved in, uh, you know, volunteering uh, with uh, the foundation, how could they do that, Ben? The best thing that they could do is to head across to our website at shakeitup.org.au. Um, there are multiple ways that people can get involved um, and, uh, and we'd love to hear from them. Okay. Well, thank you for talking with us today. That's it's terrific. been great. Mm. Thanks for your time, Paula and Brody. Really appreciate the support. It's a pleasure. It's and we'll one. talk to you again perhaps next year. Wonderful. Terrific. Thank you. Bye, Ben. Take Bye. care. Bye. And welcome back to The Aged Age. And I'd like to welcome Associate Professor Josephine Anderson, who is Clinical Director of the Black Dog Institute. Welcome, Josephine. Thank you, Paula. So tell us, what is the Black 
Dog Institute. We've all heard the term, but can you explain that? Uh, yes, well, the, um, the Lab Dog Institute is uh, a research institute uh, for uh, mental health, uh, which also uh, has a big role in um, professional education of uh, doctors and um, allied health staff in mental health. And we also run specialist clinics for uh, treatment and assessment of mental health conditions. And we also have a big community outreach program. We do a lot of work in schools and in the community. And we're very proud that we have a, um, a strong belief with, uh, in um, uh, employing people with lived experience to help us deliver our um, programs in the community and in schools as well. So mm -hmm. uh, volunteering is another big part of our uh, organisation. Now, historically, am I right in saying that Black Dog came from Winston Churchill? Yes, that's right. Winston Churchill... Uh, he coined the phrase, uh, didn't he? I beg pardon? He coined the phrase. I didn't... He coined the phrase, mm. that's right. He said uh, that um, uh, his depression, which he called the Black Dog, was always at his heels. Mm. Um, so it's, um, uh, it's an old... Uh, fashioned name, if you, if you like, but one that was particularly apt and, and I guess it's uh, stuck in a lot of people's minds. And very pertinent. I mean, I, yeah. uh, yes. the way, that, from from a historical perspective, uh, the, the, uh, the he was very aware of mm. how easy it was for him to fall into that depression. Yes. And he, he, he was, yes. Uh, and, and that can certainly sometimes happen, I think, particularly as people get older, they often, um, you know, have lived with episodes of depression for many years mm. and they can be very knowledgeable about what um, tends to trigger off episodes um, for them. And it sort of characterises it in a humane sort of way rather than saying, I suffer from depression. You could yes. say, you know, well, I've got my black dog and that's, you know... I, I think that's right. It, it, it's... Um, what's known um, as an externalising allegory, mm. you know, so the um, uh, the, the illness is, um, well, obviously it's still part of the person, it's still experienced by the person, but it's also uh, something that um, they can get to know well and they can get to tame, perhaps, um, and certainly get to manage much better. And I think it frees up the people close to you if you if they understand that that then they don't take it personally that it's something they're doing it's actually something that you're experiencing personally when you talk about the black dog yes i think i think that's right it's very important for um people to who are trying to help you know the person who's yes. suffering uh not to feel guilty about it because that really impairs their ability to to, to help the sufferer so yes you're quite right and so josephine how do we help people like like um people getting older, older seniors and such, living on their own who may experience that. And so they may be, you, you can become very good at hiding it, can't you? Yes, I think that's true. Older people do tend to um, uh, not report um, symptoms of depression as much as um, the, the rest of the population. Mm. Um, and they might not acknowledge being sad or down or depressed. Um, look, that can be um, due to age or to, you know, shame or a lack of understanding more commonly, I think. Mm. Um, or also a belief that 
you know, perhaps talking about depression or feeling sad, uh, particularly if you're not sure, you know, why that might be, is kind of like admitting to failing or admitting to not coping. And a lot of older people are very wary, you know, of, of admitting that they're not able to cope. Mm. So um, quite often it can also be misconstrued by um, uh, family and sometimes even clinicians, GPs or or people, um, when older people complain about things like aches and pains or, you know, physical symptoms that don't really seem to have any kind of underlying um, physical basis, mm. uh, they could often be presented um, when, in fact, it's an underlying depression uh, that, um, uh, that they're talking about. Um, and so, also, uh, I guess, um, older people uh, might complain about um, memory loss or their memory kind of going. And, of course, that can be due to a whole range of things, not necessarily depression, but people sometimes aren't aware that uh, that subjective sense of one's memory not being good, of forgetting things that you used to remember, uh, can be due to a lack of um, uh, or a decline in concentration, and that's certainly one of the cardinal features of depression as well. Yes, confusion um, confusion's very um, uh, prevalent with de- depression, isn't it? That yes, that mm. that that's right. Mm. Um, and so there can also be behavioural changes too that can um, can look like you know um, people are becoming confused in their minds. So anything, and they're quite variable. So people might start hoarding things, or yes. they might start refusing to eat, or start to abuse you know alcohol where they didn't mm. sort of do that before, or they might just withdraw you know and want to. Um, stay at home and not go out. Mm. Um, so they can be kind of very variable sort of things. But if it's a change in people's behaviour, yeah. then it's usually due to something that's developed, not something that's, you know, like always been there. And so how can, how can we help older people who are um, showing these symptoms of depression? Well, I think probably the first thing is to, to try to, to recognise that this might be one of the things that, that could be going on for the older person and that actually does need to be addressed. So um, there are a range of treatments that are um, uh, very effective for the treatment of, of depression in, in older people. So getting them to, to their, their GP and, and, and often it can be really helpful to accompany you know, the older person to a visit to the doctor because if people are just talked about likely to kind of minimise their symptoms or attribute them to, you know, physical health problems, then then depression can sometimes be missed. So, um, you know, being, being, you know, being supportive but also being, you know, gently persuasive, I think can often be a good first step to at least, you know, get the person um, to be able to be reviewed by their doctor. Sometimes it may be a question of, well, look, we don't really know what's going on here, but there are these physical things that you're complaining about. So why don't we talk to the doctor and, um, and you know, get that checked out? And then that can often be a good entree to begin to talk about sort of the more sort of psychological issues or the, or the symptoms that might go with depression as well as, um, you know, physical problems. And mm-hmm. once GPs are alert to that, then uh, they're usually very good at teasing out, you know, what might be depression in older people because... Um, we know that more and more they're aware these days that yeah, depression certainly occurs in the elderly as well. Um, it, it, if I'm right here, the it's not just a chemical solution. Uh, you you really need to be able to look at depression as a multifaceted recovery 
process. Is that true? Oh, I, th- I think that's absolutely right, yes. Look, for the more severe depression, antidepressant medication is usually yep. required, but um, there are also a range of um, um, non-medical or non- non-medicine type um, treatments which are... Um, are important as well uh, and and work for the elderly as well as they do for other age groups. There are sometimes some limitations in psychological therapies for the elderly if they've got poor hearing or poor eyesight, for example, that can make psychological face-to-face kind of therapies more difficult, but not impossible by any means. And there are also a number of um, adjunct and preventative things that it's important for uh, people as they age to to take note of, I guess we're aware of, you know, the importance of, of trying to keep fit and eat eat healthily, particularly diets, um, you know, that are rich in um, uh, fish proteins and grains and, and greens. All of that's an important part of well-being as we age physically, but um, it's also very important for our, our mental health. Well, that's going to make uh, you miserable for a start, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, it doesn't mean... Uh, Brady, that you can't have a treat from time to time. Um, but look, exercise is actually really um, a very important thing to um, uh, to emphasise and I, I do spend a lot of time talking to my patients about that. Uh, I, I think particularly um, starting in, in middle age, if one hasn't already started, um, in preparation for um, helping prevent things like depression in older age. But look, it's never too late to start and uh, these days, there are a lot of uh, exercise options for the elderly that can be quite tailored, you know, to their physical limitations, but at the same time can be um, not only uh, opportunities for exercise, but also social opportunities as well. So, mm. Because that is another thing for the elderly. They do tend to become sometimes limited by their... Um, uh, you know, their physical status mm. in terms of being able to engage socially, and we know that's really important for um, well, mental health and well-being. That's why too. things like the men's shed uh, group and those, you know, are hugely <laughs> advantageous for people with uh, for people with challenges in mm. that space. It can be yes. difficult, though. I think if, if you're feeling depressed, to try yes. and motivate, and you say live on mm. your own, to try and motivate yes, yourself. Yes. To I think I need to I need to go out there and do my twenty minute walk. Yes. Um, yes. It's a it's a real a cycle that you get on. I think, um, yes. and it's very hard. I, I think you know the fact that if if they have someone to talk to, if they yes. can be directed to a counsellor or somebody who's yes. going to do some you know, really good therapy with them and treat the whole um, issues holistically, I think Indeed. that's yeah. really beneficial. No, no, I think that's really important. And sometimes it's a combination of, you know, sources of care that can be useful. Um, so having, you know, someone that you can trained, you know, to deliver, you know, mm. evidence-based psychological therapy yes. can be obviously a really, you know, first-line treatment yes. for... Um, you know, the, the mild to moderate depression. Mm-hmm. But also, quite often, um, if there are other supports that people can draw on, you know, whether it's, um, you know, with family or or friends or some of the um, programs that are run by NGOs, you know, for the mm-hmm. elderly, then things like gradually increasing one's exercise and so forth can be incorporated into that. Yeah. So that, um, you know, if people are thoughtful about... Um, 
uh, well, yes, it is hard to kind of get out and get into to, to exercise when you're feeling depressed. Yes. But if you've got somebody to accompany you or somebody who's going to kind of give you that, that little sort of nudge and make it yes. a more kind of pleasant experience, that can often really get you started. Yes. Josephine, um, and, it's been yes. super. I'm sorry we have to cut you off, but we ran out, no, no, ta- out of time. It's been a that's terrific okay. chat. Thank you so much for oh, being with us today. Thank you, Josephine. That's, fine. that's a pleasure. We'll catch you so very much. soon. Okay. Bye. Bye now. Well, that's a quick one. Mother over. Yes, it is. It is. Yeah, it was interesting. It was a great mm. show. It was, yeah, a, that was, a, good was show. a little bit sharper than usual. Yes, I, I think so. Pumped along a bit. Yes, quicker. we did. We did pumping along. You have a good pump along. <laughs> you, you do, Brony. Make sure you go for that walk. Bye. Bye. <laughs>